Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Vision with Gregory Nielsen. My name is Gregory Nielsen and I'm the President and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting, where we work with nonprofit leaders and organizations to translate their vision into reality, primarily working in the areas of governance, strategic planning, and performance management and evaluation. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend Will Myers. Will is the CEO of CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates of the River Region. Welcome, Will. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and CASA as a whole. Sure. So um, starting with, with myself, um, I've been now at CASA for about six years. Uh, I came on in 2013 with a, a career, kind of a varied career. I, I moved to Louisville in 2004 decided to go on to law school, but realized that I wasn't very interested in practicing law in law school. And I was also working at a nonprofit during that time. And so I graduated and realized that nonprofit was really my calling. And I decided to enter into the field uh, in, a, in a more comprehensive manner. So I took over at the uh, Community Action Partnership at Louisville Metro, uh, which is part of a government agency in 2011, and stayed on there until now, uh, or until 2013 when I came to CASA. And I also did an MBA in that period. So I tried to kind of mold my career trajectory towards the, the nonprofit, but also the uh, measurable and, and outcomes focusing of nonprofits. Can you talk a little bit about maybe how that background has helped you as your career has developed? I mean, that's a, that's a unique background. It's a, you've been through law school, you've been through business program. How has that impacted your nonprofit leadership? Sure. You know, for me, nonprofits are really a great field. The, the last statistics that I heard were that here in Kentucky, one out, of every thir one out of every 11 individuals is employed by a nonprofit. And for me, I realized kind of early on that I really wanted to work in the nonprofit field because of the passion of the people who worked in it, because of the ability to make change, and because of the, the, the many kind of daily changes that can be affected in nonprofits. Nonprofits tend to be uh, very nimble, and so we can kind of operate in a way that we can respond to change as it's needed and, and, and kind of mold ourselves into going where the need is. And so that's, that, that was you know, part of what attracted me to nonprofits. And I think also I really, I take a lot of pride in the field of nonprofit management after my MBA, I also did a certificate in nonprofit executive leadership. And it's because I really believe that the nonprofit profession is a profession. It's a profession as much as many other professions that are out there. And it takes a lot of different skills to be an effective nonprofit leader. You have to have skills in human resources, in management, in marketing, in fundraising, and in lots of different areas. And I think that that's one thing that may not be always perceived about nonprofits is that people a lot of times will look at us as if we are, you know, the, the do-gooders who want to make a difference and, and you know, that, that's the, the, the summit of our, of our goals. But I think that we 
look at ourselves in a way that we are people who do want to do good, but we want to do it in effective, measurable, focused ways so that we can be maximally effective and we can also ensure that we're spending donors dollars well. I think that's a great point. I like, I like the way you refer to nonprofit leadership as a profession, because when we think about other professions, we think about doctors, we think about lawyers, there are specific um, skills and continuing education that they have to do on an annual basis. And I think that sometimes um, we see that, that that gets pushed to the bottom of the pile when it comes to nonprofit leaders and how we really work to develop ourselves and also our staffs. How, how has that, um, that view of nonprofit leadership as a profession impacted the way you lead your staff and the way you invest in yourself? Sure. We've been really lucky that our board sees the, the value of continuing education, and, and I've tried to instill that in our organization. So uh, staff members have a, a pot of uh, resources to pull from so that they can continue in their educational journey, as well as, you know, a lot of our grantors and funders are now requiring that staff spend a percentage of their time or a percentage of their uh, resources towards continuing education. And so we've driven it here locally because, you know, there's, there's a, an old saying or a, a meme, I think, that says, you know, somebody's asking, why do we want to spend money on people? What if they leave? And the converse is, what if they stay and we don't spend money on them? And I think that's a real issue in the nonprofit field. The perception is, and, and oftentimes it's true, that there is a lack of resources, there is a lack of financial support for our programs, but we do need to try to find resources to invest in our staff so that they can grow and they can be the best that they can be because the, the landscape is changing. Uh, there's a lot of focus on outcomes. There's a lot of focus on best practices. There are a lot of focus on a lot of these different things that maybe in the nonprofit field weren't emphasized in the past, but now they are being emphasized. And I think it's a good thing overall. That's right. And I think anytime you're adding responsibilities or, you're, or the profession itself is evolving, um, you also have to look and see how are you as a leader modeling that evolution? How are you giving those people who are on your team, the tools and resources they need to be put in a position to be successful. Certainly. So tell us a little bit about um, CASA, the organization you lead currently. Sure. So as I mentioned previously, I came on at CASA in 2013. We were in a, a difficult place. We had just left the recession. We did not have uh, the resources either in the bank or as an organization to do any kind of long-term planning. And so my first step was to help stabilize the organization financially and then to really grow our services, which we've been successful with. And, you know, it's CASA is, an, is a unique organization because we were founded in that nationally, we were founded in 1970 in the late 1970s by judge David Sukup in Seattle, Washington and CASA came this way to Louisville in 1984. And local people realized that there was a need for an extra set of eyes and ears for children who had been abused and neglected. And so CASA of Jefferson County was, began at that time. And since that time, we've served about 12,000 children. 
And we do it in a very unique way. In Kentucky, children who've been abused and neglected are appointed a social worker, and they're also appointed a guardian ad litem. And the guardian ad litem must be an attorney. And the difficulty enters that Kentucky has one of the worst child abuse statistics in the country. We have annually about 26,000 children who are abused and neglected. And that's more than can fill the Yum Center, our local sports arena. And so because of that, we have to find ways to help all of these kids. And the system is incredibly overburdened. There are not enough social workers. There is not enough, there are not enough resources for children in out-of-home care. And so CASA entered this, entered this arena to train people from varying backgrounds with a mandatory 30-hour training to basically just be a support for the child, to listen to them, to advocate for them, to let the judge know what's happening in their lives. And so, you know, that's what sets us apart in that we are regulated by the Kentucky Revised Statutes. We must have one staff person for every 30 volunteers, but we are composed all of volunteers. Last year, we had 204 volunteers. So it's, it's, a, it's a different model because our staff aren't performing the services necessarily. It is the volunteers who are doing that. And we recruit them. We train them. We put them onto cases after judges have assigned us cases. And then really, they're the ones who are advocating for the kids, making sure they're going to the doctor, making sure that they're going to school, and then reporting back to the judge who has to make the final decision on what the child's best interests are. I think that's one of my favorite aspects of the CASA mission is that it, it's so focused on the best interests of the child and, and what can these volunteers do to essentially wrap their arms around a child in crisis uh, and provide support and provide nurturing and provide a, an extra voice to uh, advocate on behalf of the child. Yeah. Um, um, I, you know, I think I've always found that, that piece of the mission meaningful, but I also know having been a nonprofit executive that dealing with that many volunteers on an annual basis is a big challenge. You know, there are nonprofit organizations all over the community um, that are seeking to recruit volunteers, seeking to retain volunteers. Um, but I also know how difficult it is to manage volunteers. So talk to us a little bit about um, how your organization um, does those things, everything from recruiting to retaining your volunteers. Sure. So we are part of a larger national organization. There are now 900 CASA programs around the country. So they help us in our recruiting by, you know, assisting us with our logos, with some of the, the marketing piece. But a lot of it is local because it's local people helping local children. And so it, it is very difficult. Volunteering with CASA is a difficult long-term commitment. You're working with children who've been terribly abused and neglected sometimes, and you're having to be a constant presence in their lives. What we try to do is we try to look and see where is it that we can advertise or where is it that we can do educational campaigns that match the demographics of our volunteers, as well as hit communities where we really need volunteers. I'm speaking particularly among communities where there are minorities. 
uh, communities of color, LGBT communities, different places where we can get a diverse set of volunteers to advocate for the diverse children that we see. So, so once, someone, once someone expresses an interest in volunteering, what, what does that process look like? What happens next? Sure. So somebody will ask us if, if they can volunteer. They, will, they have to be uh, over the age of 21. They have to have a clean criminal background check, and they have to not have any cases active in family court. So then they come in and they have an interview with us. We check three references, and then we... From there, they have to do a mandatory training. There has to be a mandatory 30 hours of training. From there, they do an observation in court, and then they're assigned to a case where they do a home visit. And then they work with the child over the life of the case to ensure that all of those things that I mentioned previously are getting done and that the judge has a full, uh, a full understanding of the child's needs. And throughout that process, I suppose you mentioned that they're matched up with a staff member as well. Is that someone that can provide a level of support should questions arise? It is. As I mentioned, um, there must be one staff person for every 30 volunteers. And so our staff people check in on the volunteers. They go on home visits with them. They make sure that they're being responded to. They, they may help navigate the system with social workers, with attorneys, and then they help support them in court by viewing their court report as well as being there present for them in court. Now, a lot of these volunteers, they're obviously interacting with these children in, you know, what may be the lowest point in their lives or a particular period of crisis. How do you prepare a volunteer for the various things they may see, they may encounter, and how to draw, draw those lines between areas that they can provide help and areas where they might not be able to provide help? That is always a difficult piece because we all have expectations and understandings of what we would like every child's life to look like. And that would ideally be the, the best life that they could lead. But the reality of the circumstances is that we work with kids who come from generations of difficulty. It might be poverty. It might be generational abuse. And so our goal is to ensure that they're safe and to ensure that they have the support system necessary to be the best that they can be. And so that, that's our ultimate goal. And that's what the, the supervisors, our staff, try to help the volunteers do. Because, you know, th there is this, this desire to ensure that, that every child and every case ends up in a, in a perfect situation. But that, you know, that's not always the, the end result. And what we might not understand is what's best for the child may not be what we think is best, but really because we do have the child's interests at heart and we do want to advocate for them, we really try to allow them to have a, an, a, an important and a pivotal role in deciding their own future, whatever that is. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier around the profession of nonprofit leadership and particularly investing in your staff. It seems like for an organization like yours that is so heavily uh, involved in volunteers and volunteers building such deep relationships with your staff members, do you feel that that makes it even more important for there to be a, a level of stability among the staff? It does. 
because we work with volunteers, our volunteers bond with staff people and they get to know them. They get to know the, the ins and outs of, of their lives and, and relationships. And, you know, they, they form a, a deep bond. And so what we try to do is let those volunteers know that they're supported. And when there is a staff change to try to ensure that it goes as smoothly as possible and that the volunteer feels like that they are supported and that they are you know involved in the process because i learned a long time ago that the one thing that people need the most is information be they volunteers or if they're staff whatever role they hold in an organization people like to be informed because that way they don't have to guess the answer and they don't have to create situations that become self-fulfilling prophecies. And so what we try to do is let the volunteers know up front as much as we can and let the staff know as well so that everybody's involved in the process. That level of transparency, I'm sure, is helpful for the volunteers. Um, in particular, though, you mentioned I mean, just the level of collaboration that needs to take place between your staff and volunteers. Also, if you could, maybe speak for a minute about the level of collaboration that's necessary when you're part of a national organization like yours. I mean, the, there are several different layers of, of organization, layers of communication that need to take place. Um, how, do you, how do you ensure a collaborative spirit there as well? Sure. So our, we have a national organization which governs the 900 CASA programs, and we also have a state organization. There are about 21 CASA programs around the Commonwealth, and we're one of those. And we must have a state organization by state law. And so I was lucky that when I came on, I was able to help build our state organization. I served as the first board chair. I wrote the 501c3 um, uh, application and was able to be involved in the process. It can be difficult when you have multiple organizations in the same geographic area to differentiate between. Between them. We're not chapters, so we don't have, we're not directly a part of a national or regional organization, but we are each 501c3s and there are CASA programs in all the counties surrounding us. So what we try to do, again, I, I think it all comes back to communication. We try to work with our surrounding CASAs as well as our state organization who's in a difficult position because they both advocate for us and they regulate us. And I think that the, the key to these relationships is that communication of ensuring that we don't go out of our area in recruiting, that we abide by some common fundraising expectations, that we uh, each do things in a way that's similar so that we, we can function effectively as a team. Because with, with each organization being a separate entity and each judge having different expectations, we, we really do have a very independent model, but we do collaborate well, we work together. It's not always easy. Uh, sometimes there are challenges because of, you know, geographic issues or because of, uh, you know, where, where we stand on things, but we, we do try to have an open dialogue and a culture of understanding so that we can work together because we are only here to serve children. We're not here to have paychecks. We're not here to 
have jobs even necessarily. We're here to make the lives of children better. And we all thankfully can focus on that and do what's best in that interest. I would imagine another benefit of having a kind of national arm to what you do is that kind of brand recognition. So I remember when I, um, you know, I, when I was in college, there was a CASA affiliate up there. Then when I was growing up, I was aware of the CASA name. And then obviously relocating here to Louisville several years ago, became aware of, of your organization and your work. Um, does that help when volunteers perhaps move or change locations, that there's a certain level of awareness that people are coming to the organization with? It does. You know, and I think with everything, there are obviously challenges and there are opportunities. And for us, as being part of a larger organization, there are other entities in the area uh, all around the country where people can say, and, and we've had volunteers who've said, I was involved in a CASA in you know, this place and I'd like to get involved with you. Now, the converse with that is if, if an organization was not particularly well run, if it was not as effective as a person thought, then we also bear that burden as well. So I think with any organization that has a larger national presence, the pros are, you know, compared to a, 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 an individual nonprofit, that there is a visibility, there is the ability to get to, to, have, to lean on your neighbors, to learn from their successes and from their uh, failures, to kind of work together. But then the challenges are that you operate within a, a confined structure. You do not kind of get to do your own thing regarding some issues. You also, you know, bear the, the burden of if there is a program that's not run particularly well or not effective, then you get painted with the same brush. And so, again, as with everything, I think there are pluses and minuses. But for us, it's been a very positive experience. When it comes to governance and building your board, is that an area where you have a fair amount of autonomy or are there, um, is there specific guidance and, and specific requirements handed down from above? We do have a lot of autonomy. There are expectations in terms of diversity as well as a, a, a broad uh, membership. We do have to, by state statute, have a certain number of board members, but there is a lot of autonomy in that area. And I think that that is an area on which nonprofits can struggle, is that board leadership. In a place like Louisville, the last statistic that I think I saw, we have something like 2,500 nonprofits. And so there is a lot of expectation on local professionals to join nonprofits, people to donate to nonprofits. And so we're all trying to get a, a finite commodity of individuals to participate in our organizations. And so we're trying to get people that are interested in children's causes that are interested in abuse and neglect specifically, because I think that a lot of nonprofit organizations, they get people involved that may not necessarily want to be involved. Either it's a requirement of their work or it's a requirement of, you know, a social group, or they may want to be involved, but realize that it's not necessarily the, that their passion and what I always try to encourage people who are looking at boards is to find your passion. If you're on a board that's helping with, 
for example, animal causes, but your real issue or your real care is among, is related to people, um, you know, in the, in the aging community, then, then look to that and, and find your passion because that at the end of the day is going to be what drives us, I think. And, uh, but we've, we have been very successful, thankfully, in having a supportive board who understands the needs of continuing education, who supports the organization and really wants to see us grow. You mentioned the passion of board members, and this is an area that I, I feel strongly about as well and do a lot of work in, in working with nonprofit organizations on their recruitment plan for board members. What is, if you could put your finger on, what is the single most important factor when it comes to serving on your board um, that helps, uh, helps tell you that you found the right person? I think it's engagement. We're all looking for time, talent, or treasure. And not everybody can do all of those at the same time. And so when we, you know, when meeting with board members, we try to understand what is it that they feel they can bring to the table and then how well do they do that? I know there are a lot of different mechanisms for measuring that. There are matrix there that you can do a, a board matrix. You can do board report cards. You can do lots of different ways to try to, to quantify if a board member is successful. But for me, I think that it's, it's involvement. Who are they introducing us to? Who are they soliciting funds from? How are they participating in, our, in, in the life of our organization? Those are really very important to us. I think that that's always, um, that's always an, an interesting challenge for nonprofits to determine what are some of the most important characteristics for their individual organization, because what's important in becoming a board member at organization X may be very different than what's important at organization Y. And, and perhaps for you, having been at diff a couple of different organizations in different areas, um, you've seen that yourself throughout your career. I have. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been part of boards and I've, I've worked for boards. And I think that I, what I encourage board members to do is to do a, you know, a, a course in understanding what it is to be on a board. I know that several local organizations offer that. There are national organizations that offer that same training because there is a there's a, there's a, a duty on being a board member. There's a, a uh, financial duty. There is a, a governance duty. There are lots of things to which board members, I think, don't realize that they have a responsibility for. And they also, I think, need reassurance that if they hire the executive staff, that that person does the job or those people do the job and that the board generally is not involved in the day-to-day -day operations, that they are the ones making connections, they're helping to grow the organization through time, talent, and treasure. And I think that's where they really excel and where they can be the best. All right. I think that that's always the challenge for nonprofit leaders is how do you keep your board at that strategic level, not too high up and not too far down in the weeds, but kind of that sweet spot where governance takes place. And I think that, you know, for all of what we do, we really try to ensure that people want to do it. I, I've been a part of, of boards and, and part of organizations where it does feel like a chore. And to be honest, those are organizations or those are, are times when it's really difficult to be involved in the work. 
And so what we really try to do is personalize all of our experience. So with the volunteer experience, our volunteers are able to pick cases so that they have, a, if they're uh, interested, for example, in working with a certain age group, if they're interested in working with a certain number of children, then they can really do that because it's a way that they can feel more involved in the selection. The same thing with the board. It is very natural, and I think I fall into this trap sometimes as well, of wanting to put your, uh, your accountants into financial committees, your HR people into HR committees, when a lot of times people want to volunteer in a way that's meaningful for them. And it may be that they want to participate in the program committee, even though they are by trade an accountant. And so I think it's letting people decide what it is that drives them, and that's what keeps them involved in the organization and keeps their interests piqued. I think that's a great point, and I, I think that anytime you can find unique ways to engage board members at an individual level, um, you just see a whole different level of, of performance. And so I, I, I really appreciate um, nonprofit leaders who take the time to figure out how best to leverage the unique skills of board members and realize that, that you're developing a team just like you would your staff or your volunteer base. Exactly. You know, non, I think one of the pitfalls of nonprofits is that people may perceive that anybody can do it. The, the kind of, the, the, um, the, the perception is, as I mentioned earlier, that you want to make change and you start a nonprofit but there are a lot of skills that are essential to building a nonprofit. You have to be fiscally sound. You have to understand programming. You have to understand laws and regulations. So many different skill sets are involved in it. And that's why I really call it a profession because it's more than just the desire to do good. It's the ability to do good and the desire to do good while also having a set of tools at your disposal to help drive that mission and make sure that you're doing real good instead of harm. Right. I've seen, uh, you know, um, reflection, I, I've seen academic papers on organizations, not necessarily nonprofits, but others, which they're, they're doing something with the expectation that it will have outcome Y and the outcome is outcome Z. And so I think that's very important for us to keep in mind that, the desire to do good must be backed up with an understanding of how that happens and an understanding of how to make that the most effective. And so that, and that, that, you know, that permeates every area of our organization, board membership, staff, uh, you know, involvement, volunteer involvement, because we're all ultimately working on the same team to build something to make other people's lives better. That's a great point. I want to, uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask one other question. So if you could, you, you and I have been, been in this profession for quite a while now. If you could go back and talk to the Will Myers who was just joining the nonprofit profession, what is one thing that you know now that you would tell him back then? Gosh, um, I think that, um, you know, when I entered the nonprofit profession, I think that it, it, it wasn't with an understanding at that point that this would be a lifetime career for me. And 
what I now see is that I, I really love the nonprofit field. And so I think if I could go back and reflect on what it is that I would uh, do differently or change or even realize more, it would be how connected I am to this field and how, you know, getting involved in, in, in the early part of my career, because I wanted to make a difference, I then learned through my formal education as well as through trial and error because, you know, um, HR classes and everything else can only teach you so much. There is a lot of on-the-job training. What I learned in all of this is that it, it, is, it takes a lot of skills to work in a nonprofit and that I, I would like this to be that I didn't realize that I would like this to be a big part of my career path and that there are skills that are necessary that I would like to help develop in myself at that time and in other people uh, because it, you know, it, it might've helped me in the long run faster. I think that through education, through trial and error, I've developed those skills, but understanding the nuances of nonprofits as well as understanding that it was going to be a career path for me, I think I might have focused on it a little bit more. Well, Will, I want to thank you for your time today. Um, you've talked to us a lot about the volunteer, uh, the importance of volunteers in general and specific to your organization at CASA. If we have anyone who's listening to this podcast who may want more information about CASA or who may want more information about potentially volunteering with the organization, what advice would you give them? You know, to be involved with CASA, it's really just to apply it takes about one to four hours a week. So it's less than people expect a lot of times. And it's just being there for the child. It's ensuring that they have somebody to be their mentor and to listen to them. And you can get involved by going to our website, casariverregion.org, filling out an application. You can come to one of our, one of our CASA 101 sessions to be involved. There are lots of different ways to get involved in volunteering with our organization and, and to change change a child's life. So don't hesitate to reach out because you think it would be a long-term commitment or a heavy weekly commitment. About 60% of our volunteers are actually full-time employed. So there's no time like the present. That's wonderful. Will, I really want to thank you for your time today, sharing your experience, your wisdom with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This has been Gregory Nielsen of Nielsen Training and Consulting, a nonprofit vision podcast. Um, If you'd like more information about Nielsen Training and Consulting, please go to our website at www.nielsenconsults.com. Thank you again, Will, and have a great day. You too.